2021, Harvard comes out with a study that rocked my world. The number one indicator of a child's mental wellness is the mental wellness of their parent. You can recognize that there's no perfect parents, that there are some patterns that you built into your kids, not because you're a bad person, but because you didn't know any better. And let's believe God can do something. He can take back some ground. I think it's a win that slowly, too slowly for me, that the church is moving past, hey man, just pray harder, (laughs) believe more. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? Okay, that one I'm super embarrassed about. <laughs> Do you like me? Do I like you? Yeah. As, a, as an individual or as yeah, a podcast? Yeah, as a person. No, person. I like you. Okay, cool. Yeah. cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't bowed a Nebuchadnezzar statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. Hi, I'm Kareen Ripperda, Care Ministry Leader at the Mount Pleasant Campus. We are wrapping up our May Mental Health Awareness Series with two final episodes. Next week, two therapists will share their counseling experiences and expertise with mental health in the context of the conversations and stories told in this series. Chip Judd, a pastor and licensed therapist here at Seacoast, as well as Lynn Harrison, who has a practice here in Charleston. Today, Joey converses with Toby Slough as the conversation shifts primarily to the mental health of children and teens. Toby visited this past winter and spoke to parents on the surge of mental challenges facing our younger demographic. We figured let's get him in the podcast studio as well to have some back and forth on a topic of such paramount importance to parents. You'll hear a man whose heart bleeds for the betterment of our children, and we're blessed to have him. It's also an interesting discussion on cultural trends as Mr. Slough shares some sobering stats on what this generation of youngsters are facing, as well as what healthy responses may be to potentially mitigate the widespread toll our current society's setup is having on these precious little souls we care about so deeply. Did you know that post-pandemic, an average of 500 kids a week are admitted to hospitals for mental health care? Let that one sink in for a second. Toby speaks on this current climate that is producing less resilient kids who are in constant need of stimulation, giving practical advice to parents who are currently raising kids at home. And it's not all bad news either. According to our guest, parents are more emotionally involved than ever before. That's a good thing. But the trajectory as a whole needs to be understood and talked about. Hopefully all parents know by now that no kid will leave home as 18-year-olds unscathed by parental mistakes. But this post-COVID social media saturated existence our kids find themselves in needs to be addressed. And that's what we hope this episode accomplishes. Before you hear this conversation, Lynn, Roy, and Joey continue their discussion from last week. Somehow, these three managed to include lots of laughs amidst such a sobering topic. And let's just say Roy has Joey in the hot seat as Joey addresses Roy's question proposed last week on whether one should second guess committing to a marriage with one who you know beforehand suffers with mental illness. We'll drop right into today's conversation that kicks off with Joey's answer. 
about to flip the script. You you always like asking us the hard questions. I got one for you. All right, bring it. You ready for this? Bring it. So in your story, we heard a beautiful statement. We heard a beautiful uh, thing from Priscilla. Yeah. About obviously sticking by your side. She she made a mm-hmm. commitment till death do us part. Talk about what Joey from a perspective, like a dating perspective, like Lynn just shared her story. What advice would you say or give or her, how would you uh, advise someone who's in a dating relationship walking with somebody who's dealing with mental illness get out now (laughs) (laughs) i have a license to joke around about this right yeah Yeah. can't i so here for me my whole life of struggling with depression and anxiety, I was still able to be a school teacher. Before that, I was still able to go to college. After school teaching, I was still able to do my job at Seacoast. But there were some really bad struggles while I was doing all of that. To me, and I'm sure there's that we could break it up into tons of categories, but for me, that's one category. The other category is what I went through in 2019 where I was incapacitated. Like I just, I, I couldn't work. I think what we should do is probably answer this question from a first category standpoint. When someone is still functioning and and living life, I actually wrote down some stuff. I I think that you can never go wrong with expressing deep care. Mm. Just want to let you know, I really care about you. And you may not feel like talking, but you got to know I really care for you. I will go back to the second category of being completely incapacitated because it just warms my heart. One of my, I guess one of my oldest friends came by the house and I mean, this guy is not a touchy-feely, emotional sort of guy like and I am. So I always want to get deep below the surface. It's always hard for him. He looked me straight in the eyes and uh, I mean, it sounds like Hallmark movie. I can, I can laugh and cry when I tell this story, but he's like, you're in a hole. He's, he said, you need to know that I will get in that hole. I will dig out with you. Like I am in the hole with you. Mm-hmm. And he, he really wanted that to sink in. And I was like, man, that's true friendship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think expressing concern, I make it a rule of thumb depending on how it's going to. And if this is an offensive question, so be it. But asking the person, hey, are, are you are you thinking about harming yourself? Sure. I mean, that's just something that I think is always important. But just basically expressing I'm always here. Yeah. Some more practical things, you know, depending on how close in proximity you are to this person. Let's say you're going to run to the grocery store. Hey, I'm running to the grocery store. You want to come with me? Nah. Okay. That person probably knows that they need to get out and about. There's a chance that they're like, gosh, I probably should just get out of the house and, and, and go with this person. But bottom line is you tried. What I would discourage is... I mean, I guess we'll call it nagging <laughs> because what happens if you're struggling and someone is just hounding you and like if you start hearing some irritation, like, come on, you got to, well, then you start feeling not only are you struggling with, with mental illness, but you're also letting people down. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of, the, that was the hardest part for me. And that's why I wanted to not talk about it because I almost felt like I could hide it because I didn't want it to affect other people. But I mean, with Priscilla and I, it's always been a good rule of thumb just to be honest, like I am struggling right now. I think asking the person and depending on how close you are daily, hey, do you want to talk about it? Yeah. But if they say no, then respect that. Yeah. There really isn't 
much else you can do other than communicate. I'm here and I care about you. Yeah. And unless the person says, hey, I really need help. Will you help me? Sure. You, you can't help someone who doesn't want to walk through what you want them to do. Yeah. So again, off air, on air, I don't, it, it, you know, you, you decide whether, but I want to press you a little bit because I want to go yeah. back because let, let, let me ask it a different way and a little more personal. Your daughter comes home. Okay. She's dating a guy really serious who's dealing with mental illness. Like it's obvious um, he's dealing with mental illness. I think it'd be real easy as a Christian to say, oh, well, I need to stick by him. But is it different when we're in a dating relationship versus once we've said I do and we're in a marriage relationship? How would you advise your daughter who's in a dating relationship? Is there room to say, do you really want to marry this person and deal with this for the rest of your life? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I think you could say the same thing about if my daughter fell in love with someone who was sight impaired. Is that the correct politically correct thing to, is it blind sight? Because basically the question is, you need to know what you're signing up for. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I can talk from experience, hey, this these are the kind of things that you're probably going to encounter. And bottom line is, Priscilla and I walked that through. It was I didn't know how serious it, it was going to get, but I think deep down inside I could feel this is this is going to be serious. And I remember writing her a letter and explaining to her that I struggle with depression. And I mean, we were so young. This is such a long time ago. But how she processed it at the time, it did kind of stop her in her tracks. Like, oh, now I have a decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do I yeah. want to be with a guy that struggles? Now, at the time, she had just very surface level understanding of what all that looked like. But, and I, Lynn, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like to the person who may be listening, who, who, who may be there, like a, a, he, they're a Christ follower who's dealing with that. Like, I still think regardless, fill in the blank, whether it's men, mental illness or anything else, I think the advice is courtship, dating is a time to ask that question. I guess what I'm saying is, is even as, as sensitive as we want to be to mental illness, it's it's still I mean it's still on the table like any other question you would ask is do I want to marry somebody yeah fill in the blank yeah and I think especially when you know it ahead of time like you need to release any um, stigma of like being honest with how you feel and like the reckoning with I have a friend who her first husband had an addiction and she knew it going into it. And one thing she said to me in the middle of that, as they were going through a divorce is like, I had to make the decision marrying him. I know that he struggles with this. Can I do this for the rest of my life? Exactly. Um, And at that point she thought that she could. And so I think that it's more harmful not to ask the question and not to dig deep and to just say, oh yeah, I can I can do this and not really wrestle with there may be ups and downs. It may never get better. Like yeah. can you and that's not even something that 20-year-old Lynn mm-hmm. could even wrap her head around. So it is something that you you have to think through. And I think that's the important question is because we all we all go into marriage thinking it'll change. That whatever that behavior is, again, whether it's the mental illness stuff or any other behavior, an addiction, anything else, and we all go into marriage thinking he'll be different, she'll be different, like it'll get better. But the truth is, is we have to go into it thinking, asking the question, what if it never changes? Mm-hmm. Am I okay with this? Mm-hmm. Am I okay with living with a person that never wants to go out? Because right. that because that person is a sufferer also. Yeah, well, that that is, that is a true form of of suffering. They're 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 suffering. Yeah, and to and to that, and, and they cannot rely on the person that's 
going through the mental health crisis or mental illness, it's not like they can suffer and then go to that person for comfort. Yeah. That person doesn't have anything to offer. And to that, and to that, to that respect, it's unfair to the person who's struggling for you to expect that they're going to be able to just get over this thing. Yeah. And then you get a few years down the, 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 you know, a few years into marriage and you're mad because they haven't changed. You're mad because they're still struggling with the thing. You knew that that was the thing. You knew they were, and so really it was unfair of you to say, yes, I do to a person that you knew was going to struggle with this thing. And this is like a whole nother podcast episode, but I think part of that is like nowadays, and maybe even before that, I don't think people take a sober approach of of entering into marriage as they should with considering those things. Like, can I do this? What am I relying on this person for? And that goes with mental illness, but you're like you said, it goes with anything. And I I think people are just like feeling all the feels and jump in, but not really like understanding what could happen. Yeah. Roy, pronounce that name. Can you pronounce that? Sloth. Sloth. I do. Sloth. Ph like a like a like laugh like a G eight like 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 the G H and laugh is a a slough slough yeah who is that what is that Toby slough so uh, people are I'll hear say from that right my answer wasn't fair because you heard he me say spoke it. to our next gen months ago maybe and I'm the one who like schedules announcements and I had to tell the host how to pronounce gotcha. it <laughs> gotcha. slough did you did you hear him speak. I didn't hear oh, okay. him speak. I was going to ask if he was interesting or if he was good. Don't know. I don't know. Would it? Would you? If if I asked you right now if a speaker was good and you did not think we're getting back to that lying, I don't know what episode <laughs> it is. I what would, would you tell say? You not my cup of tea. All right, I'm, I'm so Southern. I'm, I'm going to accidentally call you Mr. Toby. You want me to just stick with Toby? Toby would be just fine. <laughs> All right, so we're here with Toby Slough. So how, how did you, kind of a snapshot, how did you get to the point where you started to travel around and giving talks and educating parents like this? I mean, I'll give you this, the, the briefest I can. All right. Because context is everything. Oh, yeah. right? So I was diagnosed with an anxiety panic disorder about 27 years ago in a time where nobody was talking about it. There's no language around it, Joey. There was a, I knew four Christian therapists when I looked in the phone book. If that t- Some of you guys listening to the phone book is this thick thing that we used to have. And <laughs> there were four, right? right. And uh, the reason I went to a counselor is because I had 17 straight days of panic attacks. Oh, my God. And I literally thought, like, the little guys in the white coats were going to pick me up and put me in the wagon and take me out. I, I hadn't. Did you I didn't 17, 17 days? days? And this is, this is like panic attack after panic attack or like one long panic attack? No, I mean, it would start, we would go to bed. My wife and I had two little kids. She was one of those people who, you know, her head before it's fully compressed and the pillow is in rim. So she would be asleep and it would start and I would get up and start pacing the hall of my house oh and I would man. walk until about five in the morning. Oh my God. And I'd lay in our little sunken living room and beg, you know, play Phillips, Craig and Dean, Mercy came a running and begged God to take it away. And I've never felt that alone in my life. 30 years ago, I was in an environment, religious environment, where what do you do when you're a pastor of a church that is experiencing meteoric growth and what comes with that? And you're battling something that you don't understand. I was convinced they were going to fire me if they found out. I honestly believe my wife would leave me if she found out. And did you have words for what it was? No, nothing. 
Gosh. I didn't tell anyone. And so I was driving into Fort Worth, a major interstate. It's called I-35 in Texas. I decided I was going to run my car into a bridge above it. Yeah. I was going to take my life. I know what it's like to be at a place yeah. of where you have convinced yourself the world will be better without, yeah. without you. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have to. Yeah. I have to. And Micah, my wife, she doesn't, she doesn't really care for me telling that story. But so many people that I get to talk to, I think there's this thing that says, well, yeah, but, but he doesn't really get. Yeah, I get it. I understand. It scared me. And so that's when I went to see a counselor and started that journey. And it was a part of our, my ministry. You know, uh, it was a part of what I spoke about once I got in a healthier place and I tr- started traveling the world talking about mental health and about my give, giving my story and saw lots of leaders especially responding. So as I was ending my tenure as a lead pastor, they started pressuring me to write a book. And so I wrote a book called Not Yet that was basically, here's the 10 things I've learned about a confessional lifestyle, about here's the way the church is hurting, not helping. And then this is what year? Around? This is I, We released it in 2020. And I was feeling pressure because my editor said, well, the last chapter has to be good. Now, come on, man. (laughs) Was he insinuating something there? (laughs) He was saying, when you write this thing, the last thing you're going to leave with people is that last chapter. So you really need it. And I psyched myself out. And so I started Googling. I kept thinking about a salmon fish, you know, they swim upstream. But it sounded kind of 80s John Maxwell leadership. So I just Googled, what's another fish? And I found out about this little goby fish. It's only in Hawaii. It swims halfway through its life from the saltwater to the, to the freshwater pools at the top of the big island, which is pretty unique. But the cool part was when they had a picture in one of the journal articles of his bottom jaw literally grows out and it gives him more leverage to grab the rocks as he swims. And I just stopped and cried and said, that's me. You know, the very thing you run from is the very thing God uses to transform you, which is the message, I believe, of the New Testament of Jesus in the garden, of Paul, thorn in the flesh. So... I told the story of a goby fish in the last chapter. And when I was, when we were releasing the book, I went online again and said, how do you draw a fish? And I just started telling a story of a little fish to kids. I felt like I've always had kind of a gift to talk to parents by talking to their kids. And the book said, you can do hard things because God is with you. We are making our kids today victims. We're, we're saying, oh, you poor baby in reaction to don't be a baby. And it's, you know, instead of saying, no, you can do hard things. It is hard, but you can do it. God's with you. Number two, you have to keep your eyes on the sun and we can help others along the way. Our healing comes. Anybody listening that has anything to do with the recovery movement knows that a part of your recovery is you help others. Yeah. You don't wait until you're healed. So I told this story, this little fish, the church went crazy. The pandemic broke out two weeks later. Wow. Yeah. Well, my daughter-in-law, who is a by trade a graphic artist, I mean, she's been approached by Disney. I mean, that kind of level. And her dream had been since a kid to do an, a kid's book. So we had time. I said, hey, why don't we tell this story and you can draw the pictures? And we did and printed it and it just went crazy. Man. So when I transitioned out of my lead pastor role, I really was. This is all since. The yeah, pandemic. this happened. This happened. So that was 2020. The book released at the end of 2020. Uh, I transitioned out at the in uh, February of last year. Everywhere I went, parents were looking for tools with their kids. And I didn't want to be a kid's guy, but I realized that people, adults who didn't want to talk about these issues, they're all in on tools for their kids. Oh, yeah. You know, Joey, the stats are they're, they're pretty sobering, man. 33% of kids, six to 18, were battling, showing symptoms of anxiety, depression, or generally being overwhelmed by life pre-pandemic. That's pre-pandemic, yeah. 33%. Yeah. 
Post pandemic, sixty nine percent. Sixty nine, and and we're talking the whole scope, like moderate to mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, they're showing some signs. The AMA came out a few months ago and said, for the first time in our history, that mental wellness and challenges mentally are greater than challenges physically in in uh, fourteen to eighteen year olds. We're putting in our country five hundred adolescents a week are being admitted into hospitals for mental issues. 500 a week. And so here's what we've done in our country. We want to fix things. And if you want to know what everybody's doing in our country, just go Google on Amazon top anxiety uh, tools for kids. They're weighted blankets and fidget spinners, which I'm not against. I just think we ought to have something better. That's the go-to? Yeah, that's it. Weighted blankets and fidget spinners? Well, my favorite is one dude, you know, creativity. He took, basically took Play-Doh put perfume in it and it's meditative modeling clay that you're just supposed it smells good and you're just supposed to because those are all coping mechanisms i believe that we have an opportunity to connect people to god's power and kind of redefine freedom you know like to me when i first was diagnosed and was seeing my counselor my goal was to never have another panic attack and what i learned through the years is freedom was not the absence of panic attacks it was knowing how to connect to a power greater than yourself in the middle of those moments where they don't define you. They may take you down, but they don't take you out. And that you can live a joy-filled, happy, successful life, and this be a battle for you, which is my story. Why are parents not going towards like therapy and and or medication or, or they, some of they the, are oh they are okay. but the problem is the wait line to the wait list to get into therapists in every city I've traveled to it's crazy oh yeah I'm not the anti medication guy right but I think medication should be your last resort not your first mm-hmm. and this is a whole nother area that the medical community is not trained in these issues they have like two days of psychiatric training in the whole four, three and a half, four year deal. So what do they know to do? They know to prescribe medication. And so we're medicating kids instead of teaching them resilience and how to move through these issues. Now, some need it. I've been on medication. Mm -hmm. You said you've been on in the past. I'm not against medication. I just think it's the cast that helps your broken leg heal. It's not what heals you. And so I want people to rely on God's power and believe that sometimes God wants to use medication to chemically level you out so that you can be in a place of finding the freedom that you need to find. I know when I, I want to say this was probably before I had kids and there was a young lady in the community. She was 12 years old and hung herself. Mm-hmm. And I I couldn't, my mind couldn't even compute that. Like 12, mm-hmm. I'm thinking a 12 year old. And I hate admitting this, but I remember having a little bit, nothing like hostile, but a little bit of judgmentalness towards the parents. Like that would have never gone on in my household without me knowing that it was going at that depth. Now having kids that are teenagers who I'm close to all four of them, two of them are teenagers, I'm close to all four of them. I could see how one of them could maybe spin out and you're basically saying, hey, just just talk to me like what's going on. And maybe that goes on for a week. And then I start thinking, "Okay, what what do we need to do? And the worst happens with suicide these days amongst teens. are, Are parents typically just caught completely off guard or are these kids those that have those sort of typical regular struggles? 
Well, generally speaking, the parents have no idea. No clue. If I would have taken my life that day on the interstate, my wife would have said, honestly, I had no idea. She would have been floored. Parents and even mates, friends, we want to assume the best. I was on a television show, Good Morning Texas, and they asked me to come because Twitch had taken his life. And they said, oh, he seemed to be so happy and he seemed to have everything going for him. What, what does this say? And what it's, I said, it says everyone's hurting. Uh, everyone has the potential to make a bad decision in a moment of when they're hurt, if they're isolated. You know, isolation's the enemy, man. You get isolated and that little voice, you give it fuel, rocket fuel. And that little voice that tells you you're not enough, it's never going to get better. You're always going to be this way. You, you have no other voice telling you something different. And yeah. I think one of the reasons last night, the things I do around the country, I think the reason there's such a huge interest in it is because parents don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to help them build a culture in their home where they're speaking identity and life and regular check-ins in a way. So when that child gets to that place, they have something to turn to. It's not starting from scratch because this is a parent's fear. Two fears a parent has. Number one, I'm going to mess my kid up. It's going to be my fault. And number two, my child is going to do something destructive to himself or someone else, and I don't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And so what we try to do is provide tools and rhythms is what we call them. Hey, here's some things that you can do in your home on a regular basis. You need to know who your kid's friends are and ask them regularly who they are. Uh, here's some ways that you can creatively, age-appropriately help them understand their identity. We just need some intentionality in this area. Yeah. We all see the mental health crisis just going mm-hmm. through the roof. Is it mitigated at all by the fact that in this generation, we at least are like, okay, we understand mental health issues, or we at least acknowledge them? Like, yes. is that helping at all? Or yeah, it's a win. I, I would say there's, you know, the good side and then the dark side. The good side is it's a win that for the first time, people are willing to talk about these things. I think it's a win that slowly, too slowly for me, that the church is moving past, hey man, just pray harder, <laughs> believe more. I think we're moving past that. The dark side of the awareness is we're allowing kids struggles to become their identity. And so there are studies that show that kids in America today are less resilient than in any time in our history. They have no resilience. Why? They don't have to. They've got a phone to research everything. They don't have to go to a library. When we as parents, we don't allow them to, in a productive way, walk through a struggle. Resilience can't be there because resilience is only built through resistance. Yeah. And so the dark side of it is, is, oh, honey, you don't have to get your homework done. We know you're battling a little depression. Well, no, you're going to play scared. You're going to do it. You, you're going to do it hurt. Instead of teaching kids how to operate in spite of what their challenge is, we're removing the challenge from them. So that's the dark side, I think, of what's happening. And I would guess that technology and phones is a, is a huge factor in the downwards trend. All the studies you're showing that a huge condition that is playing into this condition is what's happening with social media and what's happening digitally. But what I say all the time is, come on, Joey, it's like you're not going to ban phones from your kids, but you can monitor and filter. And it's like when your kids were little, you made sure that for six straight days, they didn't eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They had to <laughs> throw something green in there, yeah. right? That's what you have to do with social media. It's like, hey, you're not going to consume this 
for this long a period of time without there being some other things we're going to do. What are some of those other things? In fact, just like bird's eye view Mm -hmm. of when is the proper time? Like I've, I have a fifth grader keeps asking me for Snapchat, Snapchat and TikTok and we're like, not yet. When is the time? I mean, because like you said, it, it is the world that we live in. Right. Here's what I tell parents all the time. Here's my opinion. Until a child gets to the age that you're going to need to pick them up from a school event, you know, on a regular basis, they're in middle school, they're getting into high school, they don't need a cell phone. They don't need a way to contact you. Now, once they get to that point, they need a way to contact you, but you can monitor. So there's a difference between hey, I want you to have this phone because if your bus is late from the volleyball tournament, I want you to text me or call me and let me know. That's different than can I have Snapchat? Can I have TikTok? And my answer to that would be a huge no. And I would not allow a child that I was in my home before they left for college to have any social media that I didn't have complete access to. I just wouldn't do it. It's too scary. There's, it's like I'm not going to hand a kid a gun. And what do you want to have access to the their their habits of consumption, predators out there, a, a little bit of everything? Yeah. The first thing is you, you want to build boundaries on when this is available to be used. You know, I'm about to sound like an old man, so give me a moment. Oh, I'm like, with you, man. I'll like, jump on the old man wagon. <laughs> like there needs to be a, a there needs to be a box by your door that at certain times everybody's phone is in the box. In other words, this you don't have constant availability. They don't take their phones upstairs if you're in a two be, uh, two, an upstairs house or in their room. When they're using it, they're using it in front of you. There's that side of it. But then there's the side of, hey, if you have a TikTok account, I'm going to have all of your passwords. I have complete access to anybody that says anything to you because there are predators out there. But there also is like you're paying for it, Joey. I told these parents last night, be the parent. They're not going to like it. But there's lots of things that as a parent, you need to protect them from. So you're not going to have a 17-year-old that doesn't have a cell phone. I believe that's an unrealistic thing. But you can have a 17 that has a cell phone that you have, and we don't have time to get into this today, but there's all kinds of tools out there in the digital world that have been developed where you can constantly monitor Mm -hmm. what's coming in. I know one guy who has a specific program that anytime there's these certain words come up in any conversations their kids are having email text, any of the social media platforms, they have instant access to it. They can see it on their computer and their kids know it. Yeah. Well, no, I have my privacy. No, you don't. That's, yeah. that's not what this is about. This is about protection, not privacy. Yeah. Su- super practical thing here. And I, I, I would imagine some parents would be able to relate. And it's something we're navigating right now in real time is we we want to have and, and we, we do have I, I would I would give my wife and I maybe a C plus B minus mm-hmm. on on all of this sort of thing. And we do have a goal of regular times in which all the cell phones are inaccessible. But we've got one daughter who li- and, and she's straight, you know, basically straight A student, mm-hmm. you know, stays out of trouble. And she's like, but I, I study with my friends and she does, she's got a study group on her phone. Other times it's, but I listen to music while I'm doing my work. It's like, she, she throws up all these sorts of things. That's like, well, I, I want her to be able to enjoy music. Right. I, I want her to be able to study with her peers. And so it, it makes it hard to make like this black and white policy of sorry. That's right. 
And you, I guess you just got to do it. Well, you you ha- there have to be some times, but you don't want to be rigid to the point that there, there's not. Well, I understand this. And it's, you know, hey, sweetheart, you're going to have this. And the reason you, little man, don't have it is because you're seven. The rules are different. She's developed to a point uh, where we're going to allow her to do some of these things. And when you show this at your age, we're going to allow you to as well. It's like, we just have to be vigilant. Let's don't be like autocratic about it. Yeah. To a certain level. And I think parents need to consider for younger ones, since you asked, there's all kind of ways that kids can stay in contact with you through these little phones that have, you know, God bless a flip phone. <laughs> like all you can do on a flip phone is call somebody, text somebody, and play some, you know, chase the dot game or whatever. That's where you let a kid start. But I don't know about you, but my kids who are in their 30s, they both work in our organization. Like, they quit listening to me about 13, 14, 15, and then they got cars, and then I held the power. The ultimate was, if you do that, I'm gonna, I'm not going to let you drive the car. And they did what I said because of that. It's the same thing with phones. It's like, if you're seeing behavior in other places, I would say that using their phone as a way to get their attention, that's the positive side of where we live. Yeah. Before we move on from technology, are are there benefits of social media and cell phone use for this generation? Yeah, 100%. I'm almost 60, and I have a TikTok account, which because I'm very cool, Joey. Yeah. I'm a 60-year-old TikTok. Yeah, man. Uh, I don't know how to put something on TikTok. <laughs> I have a team, but I make the videos. I started doing 30-second videos to parents of kids of who had adult children and they blew up parents of kids with adult children. Uh-huh. And it was just, Hey, here's something to remember when your child's out of the house ab- about you as a parent. And then I started to students, Hey, 30 seconds, man. I know what it's like to struggle. I was you. Can I pray for you? We're talking about 300, 400,000 people engaging with us on those posts, which got my attention and said, there's a positive side to this as well. Think about this Asbury revival that's been happening. Think about how encouraging it was to young adults all around the country because they got to see what was happening. There is a, it's mm. not, there. it's dangerous, it's not evil, is the way I would say that as a parent, uh, we all look at it. Like, let's harness, harness the good side of it. Hope that we can, you know, put some vegetables in there with that peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. Have you thought through this concept of there was a time in which everybody just smoked cigarettes. We didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. We didn't know nicotine was bad for you. It was just the thing that you did. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is this causes cancer. And there was a self-correction in society because people were like, well, I don't want to just kill myself over the years. Will there ever be an awakening as far as what we're talking about right now to where as a society, we're like, oh my gosh, all these mental health problems, it's coming from these things that we're looking at all the time. We need to do something because I hate saying this, but I feel a little pessimistic and it feels like that ship has sailed. Now we are going to have to deal with the consequences because there's no reeling it in. I, I would agree. I think it could be the tobacco industry story, probably not in my lifetime. I'm, I'm not going to count on it, but I sure am going to hope for it. You know, there are these studies coming out about kids' attention spans. There's so many things outside of just mental wellness that they're showing negative effects on. And you're seeing, I know it's kind of got a political side to it right now, but you're seeing the government saying, hey, man, we're going to hold you more accountable for some of these things to these big platforms. 
which to me is a good sign. It's a sign of they still see that part of their job is sometimes to protect their citizens from themselves, which I don't think is a bad thing. All right. So a little off of technology, is there generationally, <laughs> this is going to be a funny question, are we getting better as parents? So I look at my my grandparents' generation, the, and the, the, the great generation, is that what they're called? Yes. And, you know, love, love my grandparents to death, but they, they weren't the greatest parents. They didn't emotionally connect. My grandpa was verbally abusive, physically abusive. And I know that can, that happens in all generations, but that generation just didn't do a good job connecting emotionally. Right. I feel like my parents' generation, and obviously we're making huge generalizations, but they probably realized that and tried to correct a little bit. I know a lot of my peers, they say things like, I don't want my kids to experience divorce like I experienced. And so over generations, are are we becoming better parents? You're be- we're becoming more emotionally engaged parents than we've ever been in the past. And that's a great thing. It's a great thing. It really is. Because what we're saying, there was a guy asked me a question last night about his parents, them stepping in some, and it was causing some issues. And how did he deal with that? And I said, well, let's deal with you. You, you have to come to the realization that your dad did the best he could with what he had, and it wasn't enough. And when you can recognize that and forgive him like you would forgive anyone else, now you're in a position to confront some of those issues. My dad you know, grew up a depression kid. He was drunk on morphine last year because he had had a heart thing, and I was in the room with him, and he told me something I don't know if he'd have told me without the morphine. He, his dad only hugged him twice in his entire life. Gracious. And I sat there and cried and thought, oh, my gosh, he did pretty good with me Yeah, for what he got. And yeah. so when we recognize, like, if it's I see what I'm going to see and I'm not doing that, that's a positive step. But it's like when we recognize why our parents were that way or we're able to release them, then we're free to be the kind of parent that we need to be. And I think this is a long way of getting around to, yeah, it's better than it's ever been. That whole absentee father I told him once I loved him, if I, you know, if I don't need to tell him again, that's gone. All of that's gone. I, I think there's, but people need more tools in the complex society we live in than they've ever needed before. Yeah. So outside of the obvious technology realm, what are other ways, maybe just one or two ways in which this generation of kids are different from from past? Well, a lot of it is they are more, uh, they are experiencing things more quickly than our generation experienced, right? So they are, you're seeing signs of mental wellness issues in kids that are eight, that one generation before they were not seen until they were 16. And so they're experiencing things more quickly. They have a different perspective than we've ever had because they live in an age of instant information. So this isn't a technology thing. This is a how your brain gets formed thing. They live in a constant state of FOMO. You wow. think about it. If We went to our friend's house to see if they were home and if they could play. That's the world we live in. That's not the world they live in. Uh, there's a constant bombardment of where a brain is getting formed Think about Netflix. Think about all of that part of the world in which we live. Because you can't separate their world from technology. You yeah, just can't. Right. So think of the entertainment. There's a constant need for stimulation. They don't know what to do in stillness. They have to do something. Those are some of the great changes. And so my question is, 
how can I replace? I can't change the fact that there's always going to be Netflix and there's always going to be this, but what can we provide for them that scratches that kind of itch in their formation in a way that makes them healthier? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, How can I help my child experience the principle of solitude and the power of it in their lives? How how early in childhood can can we start teaching that? Six. Six. And what does it look like to say to a six-year-old, hey, we're gonna we're gonna practice something today? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the tools that we built at Gobi. We built things like grat- like gratitude journals. There's studies that show that people who are in a culture of, of gratitude and thanksgiving, there's a direct connection to their mental wellness. So how do you do it? What well, forever there have been chore charts on the fridge. Let's have a gratitude chart. And we're going to get a star every day we some, say something we're gra- grateful for. It just starts building a rhythm in their life, right? One of our tools, it's called the 40 I Am's, you know, but it saved my life about 15 years ago. It's 40 statements about who God says that you are. And we're going to pick one this week. And what's going to be, you know, there's going to be an adult one. And there's going to be a child one, age appropriate. If they're six, seven, eight, it's like, it's like a coloring sheet. And they're going to color it and they're going to put it up. And if they're in high school, no, you're going to pick one. We're going to print it off. You put it on your mirror. I'm going to put it on my mirror. And one night this week, we're going to sit down, either have dinner together, or we're going to sit down with the television and our phones off after it. And we're just going to talk about why you chose that statement about yourself. Because most of the time, the kid will pick the one that's hardest for them to believe. Yeah. Right? And so you start building these rhythms in your house of where, the dumbest thing to tell somebody who's dieting is don't eat chocolate cake. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Well, then their face is going into the chocolate cake. You replace it with something better. And I'm telling you, Joey, this is my big thing. You just outlast them. They're not going to like it. They're going to roll their eyes. Dad, they're going to do that. Just outlast them. Yeah. Just keep going in that direction. That's what my daughter, she'd roll her eyes every day when Drop her off at school, and it was like, hey, Bailey, you're a leader. Let's talk about what – give me one thing that a leader is. And she, she, well, I have a seven-year-old grandson that when he got dropped off at school this year, she sent me this long text about how much that had meant to her because she had asked her son, how can you be a leader today? So we've got to quit being worried about our kids not liking us or our kids thinking we're not cool. We got to get a little of that last generation here to go, you know what? I get that. I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to outlast you because I'm the dad. Right. I'm the mom. So I'm, we're going to do some things. You're not going to like it. It's okay. Right. So I have a spread. I've got 17 and 15-year-old girls and then 13 and 11-year-old boys. God and bless you. 17 <laughs> and 13. <laughs> yeah. So I am recognizing that – I'm learning things now as a parent that, I mean, and I'm not saying this in a doom and gloom way, but it's a little too late for my girl who is going into her senior year. In other Mm -hmm. words, some of the things that I'm learning needed to be done over the years where with my younger kids, it's like, okay, I've still got some time Mm -hmm. with this. Have, did you have to deal with any regrets like that? And what do you typically say? Because I guarantee you, you have parents that come to you that just say, I just I screwed up. Yeah. I wish I could have done things differently. I wish I had those years back. And yeah. Well, I would say, if you came to me, Joey, the first thing I would tell you is, hey, if your kid is doing well, don't take the credit. So if they're doing poorly, like let's not let our default answer be 
to take the blame. You can recognize that there's no perfect parents, that there are some patterns that you built into your kids, not because you're a bad person, but because you didn't know any better. And let's believe God can do something. He can take back some ground. One of the greatest things that you could do, Joey, because I'm just talking to you here with your 17-year-old, is tell the truth. Hey, I see this in you. The way that you react, I'm just making something up because I have no idea. But the way that like you react in that situation, I finally figured out that I learned that. You learned that from me. And can I just tell you, man, I was doing the best I can, but I missed it. So I'm going to try to do better. Would you help me? When you see that, would you point it out? And I'll do the same for you. It's crazy what happens when you partner together like that. When you treat a 17-year-old, not like a six-year-old. Yeah. But you go, hey, I did it. Vulnerability, if you build some vulnerability in the culture of your home, they're not going to take advantage of it. Oh, they're yeah. not going to think less of you. Oh, yeah. They're going to think I've experienced that more sure. of you. And so just say to her, hey, man, I see this. And I missed it, man. I said no or I wasn't paying attention. I'm going to try to do better in this area. So pray for me. And by the way, like my mistake is not a free pass for you. So I'm going to point it out to you too. But I'm, you know, I recognize. And now it's not high versus low. It's like we're doing this thing together. Yeah. This is what I did with my kids, especially my daughter, who battles some of the same things I do. And part of the triggers that she learned were watching me. And so I said, hey, baby, that struggles sometimes too. And man, I'm gonna like, will you pray for me? And will you, when you see this happening, remind me of this. Okay, Dad, and I'm going to remind you. And then when she was in her mid to late 20s and she was living in another state, her husband is a college football coach, and she was away from home, family, a new environment, and she started battling panic. Well, guess who the first person she called was? It was her dad. Mm-hmm. We found her a counselor. We began doing some work. That got forged out of that vulnerability earlier when I think sometimes we just throw up our hands and go, well, it's too late. It's it's never too late to begin that process again. For parents who can say, all right, the the things that I, that I knew, that I know that I did is, A, I was there mm-hmm. and like physically present and B, I was there emotionally. Mm-hmm. I may have done a ton of mistakes. I may have missed the boat on a, a, a million things. But if if someone can say at the end of the day when their kid is graduating from high school, moving out of the house, I was there physically and I was there available emotionally, that's a, is that a big deal? That is a huge deal. Yeah. It's, it's gigantic. I mean, that's half the battle. Yeah. Can I'm, getting, you, I'm getting a little lump in my throat, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, can I give you the other half that could yeah. accelerate this process for you with older kids? If you were to open my phone right now, you look in reminders and you would see that twice a week there's a reminder that says – Tell Ross you believe in him. Yeah. Tell him how grateful you are for him. That you affirm and and speak future over your child twice a week, no matter how they respond. My experience has been it radically transforms what happens. And here's the thing, Joey. You know this theologically. I'm not going all pastor on you here, but theologically. God stands outside of time and space. Mm -hmm. I've watched men who have discovered what we talked about a moment ago in this father thing. Go stand by, kneel at their father's gravestone and tell them that they forgive him and watch their life radically change. Why? God's not, God, he ain't in the time business. Yeah. He can do something 17 to 18 to 19 that took 10 years to develop. He, he can do that. I just think you have a limited capacity. All of us do. Don't waste it beating yourself up. Use it to begin to do these things for your children. 
and let God make up the rest, man. Yeah. That's yeah. my story. Yeah. Our family's too busy. A hundred percent too busy. Look, here's what's happened with mental health in America. I'll, I can't snapshot this. Mm-hmm. A pandemic comes unprecedented. Just mental, physical development. My grandson, Gideon, seven. He gets on a bus to go to school for the first time. The first four months, he doesn't know who anyone in his class is because they're wearing a mask. Every day he gets on the bus, they tell him, hey, don't sit here. Don't touch this one here. If you do this, you could get COVID and die. That does something developmentally to a child. And that's a seven-year-old. Same as 16, 17, 18. And we were battling that as parents. It was an uncertain future for us. So we didn't have capacity to help our kids through that moment. It's a perfect storm for there to be mental wellness issues. So in 2021, Harvard comes out with a study that rocked my world. And it's the reason I'm doing what I'm doing right now. The number one indicator of a child's mental wellness is the mental wellness of their parent, which says this, number one, the greatest, I can't control so many things with my kids. Some of you parents that are listening go, I will. Okay, get you a teenager and let's talk, right? Yeah, yeah. come back on that one. (laughs) But you know what I can't control? Building an environment where I'm as mentally healthy as I can be. Uh, That's the greatest gift I can give my kids. That I can ask my child to partner with me at an appropriate level. There may be lots of things. I can't control the internet. I can't control if there's going to be another platform. I can't control whether I'm mentally healthy and whether I invite my adolescent child into the process for us to learn together. That encourages me. So we've got tools like front facing for us is for parents because parents who wanted nothing to do with mental wellness issues need tools. But we also have tools for adults. Why? Because self-care is not selfish because it's soul care. And having a healthy soul is the greatest gift that you can give your, your marriage, you as a parent, your friendships, your business. I'm on, I'm on this mission for pastors, man. Mm-hmm. Like, I want pastors to be healthy. Why? Because that's the greatest gift they can give their church is a healthy pastor. And if we focus on what we can do, God will do the rest, man. I believe it. When it comes to therapy, if the resources and options are there, and you, you mentioned, and I, you know, I experienced this too at, at, in seasons of life, just how unavailable therapists are. And I know a lot of them personally, and they're just like, there's not enough therapists right now. But if the opportunity is there, would you encourage parents to to use therapy in the same way that we use a pediatrician for regular checkups? Hey, let's let's do that with therapy also. Like there's we don't see any signs of anything, but we want you to, you know, here's what a therapist is, here's what your goal is. One hundred percent. I think that is the case. And here's what's great. If you're looking for positives out of it, the hell of COVID and, and shutdowns and all of that. We, fi- we found out that online counseling works, that you don't have to be face-to-face. In fact, most of the counselors, not all, but most that I've talked to, say there's it's not detrimental. Like, it's, it's not, well, it works, but it's not as good. They're not saying that. There's so many places out there that you can schedule an, a, like a, a monthly or a quarterly check-in, check-up with a counselor online. The national, the rules are, you can't go across state lines. So the organization has to be big enough that they've got people in certain areas. Yeah. So that is a tremendous opportunity for parents, I think, in today's world. You say, man, we're going to part of this thing, part of us getting healthy together. And again, I would say to a parent, which I know isn't your deal because you are in touch with that, 
be be a model for your kids. Like you see one, you say, I'm going to see one once a quarter, whatever, and you're going to see one. And get that into the rhythm of wellness in your house. And that's more available than it's ever been. The church that I led for all of those years, we built a hundred person lay pastor counseling role where they, they went through training. They know how to assess. Why? Because sometimes just at a level of a check-in, these people are trained to know if they need something more than what they can do. But, but that's a great place to start is with a lay counselor or lay pastor. In fact, Go to our website, beagobi.com, and go to Mental Wellness Resources, and you'll see there at the bottom, there's a church in Argyle, Texas, that has 100 people ready and willing. They're helping us talk to people about these issues at a deeper level, at like one level before you would get to a licensed practitioner. And I think it's awesome. I think it's springing up everywhere. Yeah. So I think the future is bright. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, the the TV shows and stuff that are our kids watch, we watch with them. And I, I love that in pop culture, kids on TV mentioning their therapist is just like a normal thing now. Yep. That's kind of neat to see. Yeah, it's kind know? of in some circles, it's kind of like, it's the thing to do. Right. Okay, well, it's okay. I like the fact that that's the thing to do. Right, right. And if you say something against it, we'll all cancel you. <laughs> exactly. Wow. That's a whole other issue, yeah. isn't it? Oh, man. So kind of a random question that I wanted to fit in. We'll wrap this thing up here soon. There's a lot of justifiable giggles as far as just how trophies for losing season and, you know, it's funny stuff like that. Always telling kids good job when maybe they didn't do a good job. But then you go back and, and we mentioned my grandparents' generation and I would imagine probably brutal honesty was probably not the best way to go either. What What is a good balance when it comes to a kid's self-esteem and truth-telling. Well, the balance there is to not tie performance to worth. That's the balance. That's, that's the yeah. overcorrection that's happened, right? There's a difference between, I mean, we're going to give you an award because you worked hard. You showed up at all your practices. You did your very best. That's different than a participation trophy. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I want to tie someone's identity and or their self-esteem into different things than achievement. Because if not, man, that's the road that you go down that gets really, really dangerous. And I think that we reacted against the last generation to everybody gets a trophy. And now I think we're seeing the thing begin to swing back. My big thing right now, Joey, is resilience. It's how can I build resilience in kids? And one of the ways you build resilience in kids is it's about their effort. It's not about the output at the end of that effort. Yeah. If you listen to professional athletes today, you'll hear them say, hey, I learned a long time ago that my job was to work as hard as I could. And then the results were not up to me. That's what, that's a healthy self-esteem issue. Why? Because you can control that. Yeah. I can control how hard I work. All right. Have you heard of Kenneth Wilgus? Oh, yeah. His book, Feeding the Mouth That Bites You. And when I read it, I, I pretty much was like, that's the game plan. And and to make a long story short, he he basically says that adolescence is a fairly new thing because back in the day, kid hits 13 or 14, they're going to work in the farm or get right. married or, or what have you. So it's like we've been scrambling for decades. What do we do with these kind of adults that are in our house that talk back and, and all that? And his thing is over time, make sure you state clearly what their privileges are and what sort of things that you're saying, hey, this is up to, to you now. Working your way towards senior year, and some of my friends think I am crazy, but my plan for senior year is 
you abide by the rules of the house and and there's accountability there. So if you don't, there's going to be consequences. You don't get to just do whatever you want. You're living in this house for free for crying out loud. But after that, you listen to whatever you want to listen to music wise. You can watch whatever you want to watch, go wherever you want to go. Dare I say, come and go as you please. And the reason being for me is the very next year, they're going to have that anyway. And so I would rather my kids have that sort of freedom so they can make mistakes and still have the consistency of coming home and and having that as a stationary, you know, fixture in their lives. Is that crazy talk? I, I think at its core, it's not. I would add to that that parenting is a series of painful releasings. That's all it is, man. Your ultimate job is to release your child into independence and adulthood. And there's lots of different paths to take it there. I would add to what your perspective is. You say, I have some values in my home that we have in our home. I'm going to give you as much freedom as you want until you violate those values. Then I'm going to pull it back a little bit, and you're not going to have so much freedom. And over time, as as you honor it, I'm going to give you some more. The reason is that's how the world works, Joey. Yeah. You What they want is how the world works. My son, hey, look at me, dude. As a 16-year-old, I am a full-grown man. I don't get to do whatever I want to do. I am submitted to the authority that pays me. That's how the world works. Hey, son, you're not going to talk to your mother like that. That's a value you're violating. If you don't figure out how to hurt, you want to honor your wife, and I would have failed. And so I do believe that you ought to give some freedom, but I think there need to be some parameters to that so they can experience in your home some failure (laughs) in love, that's a little more protected than the failure of a kid that goes off to school, decides he's never going to class. I know one of these kids that went to a state university. To, he canceled every class, took the money, and put it and partied for, and his parents didn't find out for a semester. Wow. Okay, that's damaging, right? Right. I'd lot rather you have to pull back on your child because they're violating some of your family values, but the other end of that spectrum that people think you're crazy, that, oh, no, as long as you're in my house, then what are you conditioning them for when they're not in your house? Right. Yeah. I've always said, like, the only thing worse than a fiercely independent 17 or 18-year-old is a 17 or 18-year-old that's depending on you for everything. That's the only thing worse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, you know, I don't, I don't want to have an empty nest. Listen, man, the only people I know that don't like an empty nest are people that don't have one. <laughs> that's the goal. Right. Stephen Covey, man, let's begin with the end in mind. Yeah. What's the dream at the end? What's the preferred future? Now let's back up and make some decisions that will get us there. Yeah, for sure. A woman at my church, her son went off to college and she said, Joey, he called. He said his lips were chapped. And she said, we'll get chapstick. He's like, well, where do I get that? What do I do? Right. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's chapstick. <laughs> resilience, baby. Yeah. There's been no resistance. Yep. So yep. there's been no resilience built. So someone goes to beagobi.com and mm-hmm. what's what's available there? What's free? What's not? What's going on there? Um, 95% of what's on that site is free. All these resources that are downloadable, PDFs, what we call tools that are age appropriate. We have them for different age groups. That's all free. All the resources of places you can contact, that's all free. We don't kick back from anybody. The only thing that's not free is uh, our books, the book I wrote for adults, the two versions of the book that we wrote for kids in English and Spanish. Those 
cost us something. So those are for sale. All of our merch is for sale. And then something we just started, and it's really in response to what people have asked for, is we started something called Go Be Coaching. There are a limited number of people that I can personally take through some of this process to have these kind of conversations specific to their child. Hey, I tried this. It didn't work. What I did next? Okay, let's try this. And Go Be Coaching is a 90-day program. That's a paid program where you doing one-on-one coaching with me and we're building a team to do some more of that. Everything else is free. I'm trying to get the word out. I'm trying to build a community. Most parents that I talk to, it's not they don't want to do anything. They're just not sure what to do. So I'm just trying to give everybody a simple, doable <laughs> game plan, practical things they can do to begin this process in their home. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your work, and I'm going to be digging into this website as well. So thanks for thanks for being here. Thanks for helping these parents here at Seacoast, including myself. Thank you, man. It's, been, it's really an honor to be here, and so I'm really grateful, man. I'm grateful for you, and I'm, it's good to be with you, and it's good to see you don't just have a catalog, man. This is like your heart and mm-hmm. stuff you're dealing with, and I appreciate you, man. Yeah, for sure. What's this woman here to the right uh, mean to you and what you're doing? Oh, God, don't make me cry here at the end. You know, <laughs> 27 years of a guy who's dealt with panic and anxiety, man. Yeah. You know, and to be what she's been. And now to watch a woman who has no desire to be in the public, no desire to stand on a stage and be the woman, to see the way that God's using her behind the scenes with, especially with women whose husbands battle. Yeah. To say, hey, man, here's some ways to help him as you go along. It's been really cool to watch. And the greatest joy of my life, we get to do what we're doing today together. Yeah. That's fun, man. Don't forget, email podcast at seacoast.org if you'd like to ask any questions about what you've heard thus far or about any mental health-related topics in general. Our two therapists will address some of these questions in our last installment of this series next week. Thanks for listening. In the show notes, you'll find links to subscribe to this podcast as well as a link to join our Facebook discussion group. In email podcast at seacoast.org if you'd like to chime into the discussion with a question or two. We so appreciate all the encouraging words you all send about this podcast. And let's keep watching out for one another. Get on up and change the view. We're blessed to be a blessing, not on the pew. Gotta ask ourselves, what can we do to make a better place for me and you? Time to get on up and change the view. We're blessed to be a blessing, not on the pew. Gotta ask ourselves, what can we do to make a better place for me? Can say you're not the words that you be saying Or just your praying It's the way that you love That can make a better way When people know that they love Then you see a heart change The way that you love your neighbor That can say you're not the words that you be saying Or just your praying It's the way that you love That can make a better way When people know that they love Then you see a heart change